Okay, so good morning again, folks. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, as we we're going through the, the book of Luke and the life of Christ, the idea is to get from Christmas, the story of his birth, to Easter and the, his death and resurrection. And so we're trying to do all that between Christmas and Easter, and we're doing that through the book of Luke. And last week, we spent a lot of our, our, our services looking at the sufficiency of Christ in Luke 7. We looked at how he's motivated motivated by compassion to move in powerful ways in people's lives. And not only is Christ doing that for the Jews, for the people who might think, well, we deserve God to move in our lives. We're religious. We pray to him. We give to the church. We do good things. Luke is also showing that there is no one beyond Christ's reach. He meets the need. Whoever's need it is, whoever it is, whatever it is, Paul will go on even to write to the Philippian church, God can supply all your needs through Christ. He's sufficient for the need. And he's motivated by his compassion, not our worthiness. So how wonderful to read over and over and over and over and over and over again that Christ meets the need. Whatever it is, whoever you are, all kinds of people with all kinds of baggage and backgrounds, it's all because of who he is, not because of who we are. That's really refreshing. Now, last Sunday night, it was great because I got to talk about my favorite parable, the, the sower and the seed. And now this morning, I get to deal with one of my favorite miracles. Now, a quick word about miracles in general before we get into look eight. Um, some people will try and downplay miracles, and they'll say, look, we don't get miracles anymore. That's not kind of where we're at, uh, and they'll get down about that. God doesn't move in that kind of a way anymore, and they'll bring everyone else down with them. There's no more miracles. Now, that's just not true. That's just not true. They're rare because they are miracles. If it happened all the time, if it happened everywhere, if it happened every day, it wouldn't be be miraculous. It would be expectations. It would be everyday life. But uh, the miracles are rare. But you've got people on the other side of the spectrum, and they think everything's a miracle. Oh, the sun rose this morning. It's a miracle. There was a baby born. It's a miracle. It's not a miracle. It happens every day. In every hospital, in every country, babies are being born. It's the common natural law of the universe. It's beautiful. The intricacies and the wonders of creation, yes, they are amazing. But it's biological law, and it is expected. A miracle is something that is not expected. Something extraordinary, something out of the ordinary, something that is simply more than unexpected, actually. It's something that defies the laws of creation. So our faith is one that says God is a miracle-performing God who can do the impossible. He can restore a marriage. He can restore friendships. He can repair that which has been broken. Although to stop there is to not go far enough. That's just to say, well, God can do the improbable. God can do the unlikely. But actually, our God is more than that. He can do the impossible. And yet, at the same time, it is right that we expect to live under the rules that he has established, the laws of physics, the laws of gravity, the laws of biology and science. We would prefer it that way. You don't want the laws of gravity just switching off someday out of the blue. But every now and again, God's sovereign law will overrule the natural law. And in the life of Christ in particular, we see that it is almost exclusively for the purpose of 
showing the power of God and revealing the identity of Christ. That's why the miracles were happening. And Luke has been showing us in these last couple of chapters that with Christ, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap, the mute will sing, and even the dead will be raised to Christ. He's pointing to that Isaac prophecy that we looked at, or at least we touched on last week. So let's, let's get into the text. Luke 8, and we'll start at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So we have Jairus, a well-known man in the community, a well-respected man in the community, the ruler of the synagogue. It was his job to make sure all the services ran smoothly. So he'd have had the scrolls lined up. He'd have had an order service. That was his job. He ran the, the, the building, as it were. And so he was known, he had been well-known, respected. He was in high standing in the community. And yet for all his position and all his power, we don't envy this man when we come to him. He has just one little girl, and speaking as a dad of two daughters, um, I'm sure she was everything to him. But she's really sick. And so he falls at the feet of Jesus. Now I'm guessing this is risky for him to do. The Jewish leaders haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, they've rejected him. They don't like him. Uh, They are not in favor of him. The controversy is building. Uh, And so while you have a lot of Jewish people pressing in around him, you don't see a lot of Jewish leaders around him. That's why Nicodemus went to Jesus by night. And the question will be asked later in John 7, has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? So Jesus' followers were very much, it was a very much... uh, a blue-collar movement. It was the working-class movement in Israel. The elite were rejecting him. It was the people who were following him. And so for him to come to Jesus like this risks his reputation. It risks his job, his status, his income. But having said that, this is a dad pleading for his kid. He doesn't care about reputation or status anymore. And I get that. I get it when you've exhausted all your other resources. You take a risk. You'll try anything. It's his daughter, for goodness sake. Who cares about what other people think at this point? Which will make him a lot like someone who will meet in a few minutes. Now at 12 years old in this culture, this daughter was coming into the prime of her life. That is, she was blossoming into adulthood. Uh, You know, 13 or 14, a lot of these girls were getting betrothed. They were getting married at that point. We know from the Christmas series there, you know, Mary was probably 14 or 15 whenever she was with Joseph. And so she's coming to that part of her adulthood where betrothals and promises and commitments are starting to happen. And she's the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. She would have had a lot of suitors. There'd have been a lot of people jostling for her hand in marriage, coming from a good family. People would want that. Any 12-year-old girl would have been excited about the interviewing process. Like, oh my goodness, daddy, he's like so gorgeous. Which is exactly how she sounded like, by the way. You can't prove otherwise. That's exactly what she sounded like. And Jairus' whole life is wrapped up in his work and in his love for his daughter. He should have been planning her future. He should have been planning her wedding. But she's dying. Now, Luke wants you to notice something here as Jesus is going through to Jairus' house. It had been probably close to the synagogue, so it had been quite central in the town. And so he's being pressed in, and he's being pressed by people all around him. Now, I've had an experience like this, and it was quite scary when I was in India. 
16, 17 years ago, maybe it was whenever I was there. I remember preaching one night, and there was thousands there, and there was five or 600 people came forward to, to receive Christ that night. And we came off the stage, and there was this crowd of people wanting to get at the different members of the team, particularly the men in the team, wanting people to just to pray for them or to put a blessing on them, and like coconut oil, and they wanted us to anoint them, and they wanted us to do all these different things. But it got to the point where you kind of says, okay, well, look, I've got time. I'm going to stop with these people. I'm going to do that. I don't know what they're saying, but I'm going to pray. But then it started to get a wee bit grabby. And I actually had the, the white shirt physically ripped and torn. The sleeve came right off. And then security came and kind of fired us into the car and took us back to the hotel. So it was quite scary. So don't think that Jesus is it's like trying to walk through Belfast on, a, on Christmas Eve, you know, where there's a lot of people. That's not what this is. It's not just a busy street. It's people coming at him. They're converging on him. They're vying for position at him. And the disciples are probably like those security guards. They're trying to push people back. They're trying to forge a path to get to Jairus' house. And there was a woman in that crowd. He shouldn't be in the crowd, but we'll get to that. Who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So interesting here, look, he's a doctor and he notices this and maybe looks heart goes out to this woman as he hears about her because he's probably had patients like this, patients who, who, who come to him and they're so desperate and they're so need. And so he notes that she'd spent all her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone. Looks probably had people like that in his career. He's a doctor and he's breaking his heart because he's trying to figure out, oh, how do I cure this woman? How do I fix her? How do... And nothing is working. And she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you. I'm pressing in on you. So Jesus is being hustled and bustled. But Luke now has our focus on two very different characters, but both with no other option but to turn to Christ. Here we have a 12-year-old girl dying and a woman with a 12-year-old condition. There's a similarity there, but also there's a contrast. Here's a well-known daughter of a well-known man, highly regarded. And here's an unknown woman. We don't know her name. We don't know who, who she is. We don't know her background. But all we know is that she has not had a happy life. She has had an unhappy life and an unknown life. He's respected, religious, good standing, a loving father breaking his heart. This woman's flow of blood, probably a vaginal hemorrhage, which would render her unclean, according to the law of Moses. She'd be an outcast. She wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue. She wouldn't be allowed to worship. She wouldn't be allowed to take part. She is of low repute. But both of them are reaching out to the Savior. Both of them are reaching out to Christ. And she comes and she literally touches Jesus. Now, here's her thinking. I'm guessing. Okay, this guy touches people and makes them better. I bet you it works in reverse. If I can touch him, bet you I can get say, all right, there's loads of people hustling him. I can just reach in, touch it, and I can be away. No, in and out, nobody knows. I'm guessing her faith even was a little bit superstitious, that it's the clothes that are magical. There's something magical about it. Now, the hem 
of the garment. There was four tassels on the robe. They would have had the long white tunic undergarment, and then they would have had different kinds of uh, sort of robes that come over that. Um, traditionally, they would have all had these four tassels on, on the end of them. The four tassels in the Hebrew were called the sitzith, which is kind of a really strange word in English. But the sitzith, the four tassels were required by Old Testament law in, in Numbers 15, I think. Uh, and it was required for all men, 12 and over, to wear them. Four tassels on four corners, uh, blue to remind them that even though they're walking through this earth, think of the sky. That while you're here on earth, you're bound for heaven, you're God's people, so we're to be heavenly minded, we're to be eternally minded, which wasn't a bad reminder. We could do with a reminder of the guy every day, couldn't we? And so she's thinking, if I can touch this garment, if I can touch the sitzith, I'll, I'll be healed. And she was. And Jesus immediately stops. Who touched me? And so all the people who've been reaching out and grabbing him and pulling at him saying, Jesus, come to my house. Come heal my family. Come work here. They go, oh, well, I won't. Slow me over there. He was touching you. Well, I wasn't touching you. And Peter calls him out and goes, Jesus, have you seen the crowd? Everyone in the town's been touching you. Everyone's been grabbing at you. Everyone wants a bit of what you're doing. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In Israel, if you go to the little town of Magdala, which is just off the Sea of Galilee, it's only recently been discovered in the last sort of 15 years. And so it's really more of an archaeological dig site at the minute. But it's an incredible place. Um, they've uncovered a synagogue there. So we can stand in the exact place that Christ stood and read, read scriptures from the exact place where Christ read scriptures from. It's a really cool experience. But they've built a little church then just off to the site of the dig. And it's in honor of the woman in Christ's life because the most famous person from Magdala was a woman. In fact, we've named uh, her after the town. Mary Magdalene is really Mary from Magdala. Mary the Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. And when you go into the church, you, you meet this altar and you've got this stunning full wall painting and it's called the encounter. And it's of this miracle. Uh, and you just see at foot level what it was like reaching out to Christ. And, and that picture doesn't do it justice. In real life, it's absolutely stunning. Here's my takeaway from the miracle. You may not feel that like you can be the sort of person who can barge in and bully and demand time like Christ, like the crowds were, or that you can approach him in the way like Jairus was doing and invite him in and speak to him in such a way. It's not your personality to talk to Christ like that. You, can't, you don't really feel that you can sort of demand anything. You sort of think, well, look, I'm not really worthy. I don't really belong, but I need him. This miracle underlines the wonderful truth that God cares about the people on the fringes. He cares about those who can only reach the zitzit. Go to the book of Ruth. Where did Boaz meet Ruth? It was on the fringes of the field. 
How did God meet the needs of the poor and the hungry in the community? It was in the fringes of the harvest where it was left and they were catered for and cared for. God cares about the people in the margins of this world. He cares for those who feel like they can't or won't ever be able to leave the margins of this world. And then he says to her, daughter. It's the only time Jesus in Scripture calls someone daughter. And this woman who has lost everything that she had pursuing her physical health, the cost of everything and everyone around her because she's unclean, because of the nature of it. Daughter, there's relationship. After 12 years of isolation, 12 years of being unclean, 12 years of going through everything that she's gone through, that must have made her, made her feel so wonderful. Daughter, it's just so, Jesus has got class, real class. Because the people at the edges have a place in God's family. Ruth met her kinsman, redeemer, in the fringes. This woman met the great physician at the fringe. The people out of place have a place in God's family. And so listen to, the, listen to me carefully here. Jesus can distinguish the difference between the tussle of a crowd and the touch of faith. Yes, it's possible to be in church and there's lots of people making a song and dance about Jesus and the conversation is all about Jesus and we've got friends and all they talk about is Jesus and it's a busy church and Christian friends and we feel, I can't really fit in here. I don't belong here. I'm not like these people. I'm not like them. I can't pray like that. I can't serve like that. I can't do what they're doing. But I promise you, I promise you that Jesus knows the difference between the tussle of people making a show for themselves or doing things out of selfish pride and to be seen and those who are reaching out in faith that says, Lord, I don't understand it all. I know I don't belong. I know I'm not worthy but, and I don't have all the answers but I know you're the answer. And while he was still saying this to her, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine what's going through Jairus' head at this point? I can't fathom whether it is the deepest pits of despair and brokenness and he just breaks down and he weeps because his daughter has gone or whether immediately it turns to anger at Jesus. What are you doing? Why did you stop to talk to this girl? And why did you stop? Because someone touched you. Have you seen the crowd? Was this really something that you needed to pick up on? I'm the ruler of the synagogue. If anyone, you were going to help. It should have been me. Not this woman who shouldn't have been here in the first place. My girl would still be here if you'd prioritized my need. That woman, she's been here 12 years. She'll still be here by the time you go back from my house. You're calling her daughter? Well, great. I've just lost my daughter because you're flaffing around. And he's got the worst news any man could ever, ever get. And he's wasted those precious last moments away from her with a so-called savior who, as far as he could tell, didn't really care. Have you been there? I don't know if you've heard those words. I know some of you have heard those words. 
a father, a brother, a mother, and you know what that does, and I know what that does emotionally and what that puts in motion, a whole series of feelings and emotions of conflicting and confusing thoughts. But for a parent to hear your daughter is dead, troubled by, well, don't even bother with God. Don't trouble the master. Can I just pull on that little statement, don't trouble the master? Do you know what's implicit in that statement? It's unbelief. Sure, Jesus can do the unlikely. He can do the improbable, but not the impossible. It's too late now. She's already dead. Don't bother with him anymore. It's too late. It's over. There's no more chances left. Don't bother with God anymore. Don't bother with Jesus anymore. I don't know if you've ever had those words whispered into your ear. Don't bother going to God with that. Don't trouble him with that. I mean, everything that's going on, he's dealing with Brexit and North Korea and stuff and all. I mean, like, he doesn't need your wee problems. He doesn't need your wee issues. Don't trouble the master. Don't dare ever listen to that line. Don't dare listen to that story. Trouble the master. It's no trouble to him anyway. No trouble for him who can speak healing to somebody with a cold or stage five cancer. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7, talking about watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. He said, don't be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. Bother him, trouble him, keep going to God with it. Keep taking it before him and keep praying. And Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. So do you see the twist here? This man comes along to Jairus and says, don't trouble the master. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't you be troubled, Jairus. Trouble me. Don't you be troubled. Don't be afraid. Believe. And she'll be made well. Now, see the, the juxtaposition here between afraid and belief. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have faith and also be afraid. One will cancel the other out. You'll either be afraid and have no faith, or you will have faith and then not be afraid. You have faith that the chairs that are, you're sitting on are going to hold you. That's why you can sit back, you can relax, and you're not thinking about the thought that they might, maybe you're thinking about it now, but you know, you're not thinking that the seat's going to collapse. That's faith. You're living in faith. You're trusting the seats. You're not worried about whether it's going to hold you or not. But if that thought, now that I've planted it in your head, what, what if this seat can't hold me? All of a sudden, you're not sitting back on it just so much. You're not swinging on it just so much. You're kind of sitting up a wee bit more, sort of balancing yourself a wee bit more. And all of a sudden, when you lose faith, because there's fear, because the two are mutually exclusive, faith either cancels out your fear or fear will cancel out your faith. They exclude each other. So Jesus turns to the Jairus and says, trouble me. Don't you be troubled. Jairus believe it's in the continual tense. It's the imperative. It's a command to keep on believing. Circumstances may have changed, Jairus, but I haven't changed. Don't be afraid. Keep going. Keep believing. Keep on trusting me. That same faith that brought you to me is going to be the faith that will keep you standing before me now. And in verse 52, he says, but she's not dead. She's sleeping. Now, he didn't misdiagnose her here. That's why people laughed at him. 
but he knows that it's going to be temporary. It's like saying, look, just hold your horses, stop your wailing, watch this. And he puts the people who laughed at him outside, which is always a good move. When you've got people who are negative, people who are scorning and mocking, and they're just always downplaying what God can do and denouncing what Christ can do, it's always okay to let them out of your life for a while, temporarily at least while God is working. Don't be scared to do that. Don't be scared to kind of back away from people who are being negative all the time. And he takes her by the hand. He speaks to her. And I, and I love this. She gets up. And Jesus says, verse 55, feed her. He's just so practical. I, I love that. But as we close, can I just uh, take you to see one more thing on the fringes? Jump forward to chapter 9 with me. Uh, verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came to them and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. They describe the place where the thing of the 5,000 is going to happen as a desolate place. People are coming out of the towns and cities and work, places of work to see Jesus. They're away from the hubs of community. They're away from civilization. They're on the fringes of life. A desolate place. That's where they met Christ, away from the busyness, away from the commotion. It's a desolate place where people are going to be fed. Christ can put a feast on on the fringes for the famished. And they will be fed where Jesus is. They're going to be satisfied where Jesus is. But that's not what the disciples see. That this isn't their problem. Jesus, send the crowd away. Let them go home. Let them get something to eat there. Look, they've been healed. They've been taught. Feeding them's not our mandate. We don't do catering. That's not what we've signed up for. But he said to them, now will you give them something to eat? He says, well, we've no more than five loaves, two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. Come on, God, be, re- be reasonable. What you're asking is too much. There's a more logical way of doing this. There's a more cost-effective way of doing this. Let them go home and get something to eat in their own homes. Let them be satisfied elsewhere. Let them leave here hungry. And I know some of you get a bit of stick uh, to me for 35, 40-minute sermons. Um, Those 10 minutes over seem to really annoy some of you. you. Get over it, all right? It's not changing at this point now. Um, but the reason is it is my duty, it's my privilege it's my calling to feed you the word of God and to make sure that you don't leave this place hungry, spiritually and so look at the difference here between Christ and the disciples. He's mourning the loss of his cousin, John the Baptist. In the verses that we skipped, Luke doesn't tell us about it, but John the Baptist has just been executed. And yet Jesus, instead of going away and grieving, he puts that aside. He puts himself to the side. He gathers the people around him. But the disciples are wanting to move people away. Here's the beautiful thing about coming to Christ. Not only does he radiate compassion in desolate places, but he will never send you away hungry. I don't care how sinful, I don't care how stubborn, I don't care how angry, I don't care how dark it has been for you. The message has always been, come on to me. Not go get yourself sorted and then come back. It's always come. Oh, but, but it's too much. Listen, he is the God who does the impossible, not just the improbable. And Jairus, I'm sure, wanted Jesus to send that woman away. And he's calling her forward as a daughter. 
The disciples want to send these people away, but Jesus wants to satisfy them in the desolate places. If you're a Christian here this morning, listen to me. Please listen to me as we finish up. Do you see what he does? He did. He he knows that it's going to be him doing the miracle. He knows that it's going to be his power that's going to multiply the food. He knows it's all about him. He knows that he's going to be crucial to meeting the need here. But he does it by using what the people were prepared to give to him. I'm not sending them away because you're going to meet the need. Give me what you have and I'll do the rest. But first you've got to give me what you have. How many times do we say, God, show me something that's working. Show me something that's blessing. Show me a church that's on fire. Show me things that are exciting. And then I'll sign up. Then I'll put my shoulder behind that wheel. Rather than saying, okay, Lord, show me just where I need to be. I'm going to throw myself into it. And then I'm going to pray that you're going to bless it. We always want to see the blessing first before we give to God. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you want to see the crowds blessed, you've got to give me what you have first. Remember the same principle was taught when the people of Israel were crossing the Jordan back in Joshua 3? And they had to wade into the water. And it was only as they went into the water that the water stopped flowing. They had to act first. They had to give themselves over to the law and the, and the command of God first. And then they saw him move. Then they saw the blessing. Listen, we move trusting God's provision. But he uses what we hand to him first. And so taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. Isn't that funny how, how we always say you have to close your eyes and look down to pray? Here's Jesus, eyes open, looking up. He looks up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he, spoke the lo- he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces, five barley loaves, two pickled sardines or something like that. Not a lot. Enough for one little boy to have a lunch. But it was given to the Lord. And God, uh, Jesus, blessed his disciples' endeavors. They didn't bring much of a harvest, but they had what they had in his hands, and Jesus put his hand upon it and met the need. So much so that not only did the crowd have more than they needed, there was food to spare. Only God can put a feast on in the fringes. And by the way, 12 baskets of leftovers. There's that number again, okay? 12-year-old girl, a 12-year-old disease, 12 baskets. Why 12? 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, but why 12? Why 12 tribes of Israel? Why 12 disciples? The number 12 is scripturally the number of leadership, of authority. And so that's why there were 12 tribes. That's why there were 12 disciples. 12 um, comes from that idea of three being the number of the divine, four being the number of earth, the four corners of earth, or the four points in a compass. And so three by four is 12, the sovereignty over the divine and the earthly. And maybe that's what Luke is doing here by reminding us 12, 12, 12, 12, that God is sovereign over sickness and death and over nature, that, that, that there's, he is Lord over it all, that there's nothing that you can do that is too far beyond him because he's Lord over it all. And he keeps saying that 12 to echo it. I don't know. But look at what it does mean for the 12 disciples, regardless of how many there were. Oh, you have little faith. Not only will I feed the multitudes, but I'll give you leftovers for tomorrow. 
I'll give you your own basket home with you. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Huh? He is the God of the impossible, not just the improbable. He does it right. There's leftovers. This miracle is mentioned in each of the Gospels, which makes it fairly unique. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It shows me, number one, that Jesus is concerned with our physical well-being. Jesus didn't just say, well, I know they're hungry, but let's call it a fast. Let's make it spiritual. Let's get them all to pray. I'm only in the business of spiritual food. I'm only interested in spiritual blessings. No, he feels compassion on them. And the thought of meeting their physical needs was important to him. I I want you to see that. I want you to know that. Our Heavenly Father will not neglect the children that he died to adopt and bring into his family. Romans 8, that's Paul's entire premise. God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not then with him graciously give us all things? So God is concerned with your physical well-being. And it tells me something else. God can do great things by using the little things. I don't have much to give, therefore I can't do much. My bank account doesn't have very much, therefore I can't give much. I'm on the fringes of ministry. I'm not that gifted, I'm not that talented, I don't have that much spare time. I'm on the fringes. Okay, that's all right. That's okay. What you can do is enough. That's all we need, a few loaves, a couple of fish. Because when they're in Jesus' hands, it's efficient for the multitude if it's given to him, if you surrender it to him. God is Lord of it all, which means he is even Lord on the fringes. He is still God in the desolate places. We may get frustrated like Jairus, like the disciples, because we can't begin to fathom why God works the way he does or why he would put us through the things he puts us through. I hope this morning these three miracles are a comfort to you this morning that even if you are here and you feel out of control, that God is still in control. He's Lord of it all. God is still on the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are in charge of it all, Lord, that there is nothing that is too big, nothing that is too much, nothing that is too far gone for you because you are Lord of it all. Lord, we think of those who are maybe on the fringes of our society, who are in the fringes of things spiritually, the fringes even of our church, Lord. And there's people here maybe just barely hanging on by a thread. Lord, we thank you that you care for them as much as anyone else. Lord, that your heart is for them and you want to meet the need. Lord, I pray, help us to be as a church those who give what we have in our hands, Lord, as little as it may be, as insufficient as it might be in human terms to meet the need. Lord, I pray that what we have, we would give to you and you'd put your hand on it, Lord. And in our church, Lord, we would see not multitudes and multitudes, Lord, of people being spiritually fed, of being blessed, Lord, of the needs being met. And so, Lord, I pray, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to hear. Lord, we pray that we might respond to your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask the musicians to come.